Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us this morning, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you also. We do want to remind you, if you've ordered the Chronological Study Bible that we are reading through, there are the brochures that have the schedule at the, Connect, the Member Connect Center. Be sure and pick that up if you haven't already. And if you have ordered the Bible and have not yet picked it up, those are in also today. Be sure and pick that up. And if you'd like to uh, pick up a Bible today, we will... Uh, still have those available today, as, at least as long as they last. And if there are several others that want those, we can place another order. They are $10 a piece, and we look forward uh, to the blessing that it will surely continue to be to study God's Word together. So be sure, whether you're purchasing this Bible or if you're taking your own Bible and studying through, let's be sure and study God's Word on a daily basis. That's really a big part of the theme of this morning's lesson is the Word of God and how important it is. Uh, to study on an individual basis, but this morning we'll look especially at studying God's Word as we come together. And we rejoice this past week to see how God works in the lives of hearts that are open, that are honest as they study God's Word. And to see Taya and Jordan baptized into Christ, uh, we rejoice with them. And we are so thankful for their decision. And let's be sure that as a spiritual family, uh, that we put our arms around them and that we help them in every way uh, that they can. We do welcome the Williams family. How wonderful it is to be able to serve God together with other people and to worship God together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're always thankful to have other brothers and sisters in Christ that want to be a part of the family here in Mount Juliet. The young preacher moved into town and one of the city officials came by the office and said, no, you're new here, but we need a favor. We've had a wanderer to pass through, and, and he's died. And we have a new cemetery way out in the country, and we just need some preacher to go out. We believe it would be best to give him an honorable burial. And so would you be willing to do that? The young preacher really hadn't done many funerals in his life. He was kind of excited about the opportunity. He said, surely I'll do it. What time do you want me to be there? And he told the time, and... And so when that day came, he began to drive out way out into the country and he began to be lost. He took lefts and rights and drove in circles. And, and finally, after driving down many dirt roads, he came upon the site that surely was that new cemetery. The backhoe was still there. And he was a little bit disappointed because he knew he was over an hour late. And just as he expected, the hearse had already left. But nevertheless, he believed that this wanderer still deserved an honorable burial. So he went out and, and the, the crew that would open and close the grave was on lunch break. And he walked up and he addressed the people there, the men there. And he apologized to them for him being late, but he was glad that they waited on him. And he stood over that open grave. They'd already closed the concrete vault on top of the grave. But he began to proceed to give one of the most beautiful funeral eulogies that you could ever imagine. As a matter of fact, he wasn't going to hold back. It was his first funeral and he went for a solid hour. He even noticed that every now and then he'd get an amen from the crew that was doing the opening and closing. He was feeling real good about himself when he said the final prayer and the amen and he looked down once more into that grave and he walked back to his car. As he got to his car, he opened the back door and with a little bit of pride, he was taking his coat off and laying in the back when he heard the foreman say, I've been putting septic tanks in for 20 years and I've never seen that happen. <laughs> Some of you are teachers. Some of you have preached. You know exactly the challenge that it is to go into an audience and to prepare a lesson and to hope that it is appropriate. 
that it is what should be said. Maybe some of you have never taught or never preached, and that's all right if God hasn't given you that ability. But I ask you this morning to think about the importance of what a sermon ought to be. You see, as an audience, there are some things that, as a listener to the preaching of God's Word, that you ought to demand. We have an eldership that demands these things. We have a congregation that I believe that demands these things. What is it that God would want every man that gets up and preaches on this Lord's Day to say? What is it that that sermon ought to contain? It's interesting when we think about in Acts the second chapter a sermon that was powerful. But before we even go there this morning, I'd like for us to think about our theme for the year and then just notice a couple of things out of this most beautiful passage in Isaiah 55. Do you remember our theme? As several weeks ago we mentioned 1 Corinthians, the third chapter and verse 9, as we think about with God we can. And you remember the idea was partnering with God. And notice what he said, for we are God's fellow laborers. You are God's field. You are God's building. This morning, do you see yourself as a fellow laborer with God? With God, what can you do? If you labor with God, what will your life look like? But then he says, we're God's field. In other words, if God planted a seed in your life, what would be produced? You remember the corn. We have the kernels of corn. They are seed. If God planted a seed in your life. In other words, if you said this morning, God, I'm your field. I've come here not only to worship you, but I have come to have a seed planted in my life. What would be the fruit of a life where God has planted the seed? And then notice finally he said, we are God's building. Together you and I are the church. We are the house of God. It's not the structure. It's our souls. It's our fellowship. It's being a part of Christ's body. Now, as we think about with God, with God we can. We can work with God. We can grow with God. We can grow together with God. But how does that relate to the seed of God's Word being planted into our life? Look again, and if you have your Bible open there at Isaiah, the 55th chapter, look again there and and notice the text that was capably read just a few moments ago by Tony. Look at verse 8, where he reminds us that what if a preacher gets up And he decides to preach his philosophy, his opinion, his politics. What if he looks at the pulpit as a stump from which he can stand and and give his opinion or hobby speeches or whatever it may be? What's the problem with that? When we look at verse 8 and 9, we see there's a huge problem. Because there's nobody on earth that their thoughts and their ways are equivalent to God's thoughts and God's ways. That's what Isaiah wants us to see. When's the last time you've flown? Any of you that have flown, you know what it is to look out of a window at 34,000 feet. Now, would anybody try to argue that that's not very high? Friends, what does God want us to see about His ways and our ways? He makes it very clear that just as the heavens are so much higher than the earth, so are His thoughts and His ways so much higher than our ways. 
You and I ought to be insulted any time a man stands before us and he preaches but never stands on God's Word. Because what he is saying in his arrogance is he is saying, I've got ways that I can offer you that are better than your ways. I have thoughts that I can offer you better than your thoughts. And they're just my feeble human ways and thoughts. Are you really that low? Is he really that high? No, neither of those. The answer is he's wrong. He's wrong to get in the pulpit and not give us what is the higher ways and the higher thoughts, and that is the Word of God. Do you realize that across America, we have churches that are starving for the Word of God because we have individuals and congregations and elderships that have accepted the fact that if you have a catchy introduction and you have some great illustrations that run all the way through it and people leave there saying, I'm glad I was here this morning, that it must have been a sermon from God. And friends, that just is not so. What is it that needs to be planted? Look again here in Isaiah. Look at verse 10. We see that it's God that gives the rain and even the snow that puts the nitrogen back in the ground. But notice, it doesn't just return back to the earth as if God gave it just so it could come back. But he says, I give it for a reason. Notice what it is. It can bring forth the bud. Why? That it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Pause there for just a moment. What if we took and what if we planted this and then later we harvest this Who gave us that? Who gave us the seed? Who gave us the sunshine? Who gave us the rain? Who gave us the soil? All of us would have to say, even if we were talking about this physical corn, it was God who gave the increase. Isaiah now is saying, the next time you get a harvest spiritually, don't forget this. You can take it and you can do what God has intended for you to do with it. It's twofold. You can crush it up and make spiritual cornbread and you can live off of it. And second... You can take some of the seed and you can share it with your neighbor and let them learn about God also. Friends, do you see that in the text in verse 10? It's God who plans on you and I taking the harvest that He gives and making it sustain our life and allowing us to have a seed to plant for the future. What do I do with what God gives? Can I say, even as I'm studying the Word of God, as we are sitting down in Bible classes or in sermons, can I honestly say, God, I want to use the seed you're planting in me right now, and I want to be your fellow laborer. I want to be the field so that you can plant that seed in me, and it will create growth. Growth that will help and sustain me, but growth that I will share with others. Now, if there's any doubt that that's what he's talking about, I'd like for you to look again at verse 11. Notice how he describes this coming out of what we just talked about in 10. Look at 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. Why does God give us the word of God? Why is the word of God from time to time called a seed? It's to be planted in hearts that Luke would teach us that should be the good soul. The soul that says, I want to understand it. I want to deal honestly with it. 
I want the Word of God to change my life. But I realize that it is also to become a harvest that has seed that I can take and help plant into the lives of others. Acts. You remember, if you will be turning to Acts, the second chapter is that 35-foot-long scroll. And you remember that scroll that really causes us to ask some very good questions as we consider sermons and what God would want a sermon to be. Do you know that in Acts, the second chapter, we have the first sermon that was preached that is recorded after Jesus Christ was ascended into heaven. It was the beginning of the church. It was the first day of the church. And there were 3,000 souls that heard this sermon and decided not only to use the teachings of this sermon to nourish their life, in other words, to change their life, but it was also from the preaching of this sermon that began a movement. Those that became Christians that day realized that they had a purpose that their life was to be changed and that what they had learned was to be shared. You know, we've been studying the last few weeks in Acts, the first chapter. The very movement of Christianity was to begin in Jerusalem, but even then, before it ever began, Jesus made it very clear to the apostles, it's to spread throughout all of Judea and into Galilee and through the uttermost parts of the earth. And so it's always been about change your life, but then help change others. How is it that a sermon began such a powerful movement? How is it that a sermon could touch so many like the 3,000 on that day? How is it that a sermon could accomplish so much that day where the ones that had crucified Jesus were the very ones who responded wanting their lives now to become servants of Jesus? How is it that a sermon on that day could advance a cause that would last for so long. Here we are almost 2,000 years removed from the beginning of Christianity, and yet the same types of sermons are preached today that was preached almost 2,000 years ago, and they're still producing fruit and still sustaining life. Friends, I need to look carefully at that sermon in Acts 2. I need to see what it was that was accomplished that day and make sure that as a listener or as a preacher, those very same things are being accomplished today. For the next few minutes, we'll only look at an overview of this lesson. And I hope that as we do that, that it kind of frustrates you, that you say that was just too quick. We need to slow down and we need to look at this in depth. Because tonight, we're going to come back and we're going to look at some of the passages in this very same sermon in depth that I assure you, it's going to give a greater meaning and it'll make you appreciate this sermon even more. And so, yes, I'm pleading with you, come back tonight so that you can appreciate this sermon as we study together even to a greater depth of this lesson. But the first thing that we see as we say, what is it that this sermon did that accomplished so much for so many for such a long period of time? Number one, we see that this sermon was Bible-based. Now, wait a minute. If this was the first sermon that was preached at the beginning of the church, how could it be Bible-based if... They didn't have the New Testament. Somebody says, oh, well, they probably had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because that does come before Acts in your Bible. No, they weren't written at the time Peter stands up to preach either. Friends, the only Bible they had at the time Peter stood up to preach was what you're holding in your hand that we call the Old Testament. 
That was the only scripture that they would have had at that time. Note this. We don't have all of his sermon recorded. Verse 40 makes that very clear to us that there were other things that he said. But of what we do have recorded, out of 23 verses, 11 of those verses are Scripture. I want to repeat that. Lord, teach me something about what you want a sermon to be. And the Lord shows us the sermon in Acts 2. He shows us 23 verses and almost half of the sermon is direct quotes and readings from the Old Covenant. Is that what you demand? Is that what you want? Let me tell you a challenge, and and I'm not preaching at you when I say this. I'm just telling you a challenge. i tell you what even happened last Sunday morning at this very same service. If you remember last Sunday morning, we began with the reading of several verses from Acts, the 7th chapter, about Moses, and then we went back to the Old Testament. We read several passages from the life of David. And at the end of that, I felt like that during that reading, I lost part of the audience. The nonverbal communication said, Hey, if you read too many verses... We're going to zone out on you. Second service, I didn't read as many verses. Why? I'm just telling you a challenge that preachers and teachers face all the time. People like illustrations. People like application. But there's something unhealthy about our nature that says, just don't read a paragraph without stopping and making comments because I'll daydream. What I tell you was an exact thought that I had last week in a change in the sermon from first service to second sermon service. And then during the week, one of our Bible class teachers came by the office and said, can I visit with you a few minutes? Sure. They sat down. They had several things about class they wanted to talk about. Someone that loves teaching and is doing their best to teach as God would want them to. And you know the very fact they brought up? I didn't bring it up. I didn't mention it at all. You know what they brought up? They said, I'm struggling in Bible class. Anytime I read several verses, I notice I lose the students. What am I supposed to do when that's what I'm supposed to be preaching or teaching from? Do you see the challenge? And again, I'm not preaching at you. I'm talking about our struggle. I I think I'm talking about myself. I think I may be talking about you. But friends, what do we expect preachers and teachers to do when non-verbally we're saying to them, don't give me much Bible or I'll lose you. Give me anything but the Bible and I'll listen to you. Friends, we've got to change that. We've got to make sure that that doesn't describe us. Because when we see the beginning of the church, the beginning of the church, the sermon was half Scripture. If you have your Bible open, I want you to just glance with me. The sermon begins in verse 14 with Peter standing up and he's begging them to heed to his words. And in verse 17, he begins quoting Joel, the second chapter, 28 through 32. And in your Bible in Acts, the second chapter, that goes down to verse 21. 
And then he describes the transition from 21 where Joel begins putting an emphasis on, we've got to listen to the teaching of Jesus Christ because he is the Savior. If you want to be saved, call on the name of Jesus. And so he describes to them who Jesus is in 23, 22 through 25. But then in 25, he again quotes. This time, he goes back to Psalms, the 16th chapter, verse 8 through 11. And he quotes David there. Then he describes in 29, 30, 31 and following what David meant by those words. And then he quotes in verse 34 and 35, Psalm 110 and verse 1. The point is very simple. If we were to just drop back and take an overall view of this sermon preached on the day of Pentecost and we say, what is it that's obvious about this sermon? What leaps off the page that's obvious? It's Bible-based. Every point that Peter made, he began by going to the Scriptures and then saying, let me tell you what this means to us today. Now just for what it's worth, anybody that takes a lesson and says, I'm going to develop my points, here's the points I want to make, now I'm going to go back and I'm going to find Bible to back up my points, that is not dealing with integrity in the Scriptures. That's how people twist the Scriptures to say anything that they want the Scriptures to say. But notice, that's not at all what Peter did here. Peter began with Scriptures of Joel and said, let me show you how this translates to what's happening today. He went to the Scriptures of David and that the body of Jesus was not corrupted. In other words, He was resurrected. Let me show you what that means to you today. He went to the Scriptures where David said, let me show you how He's not in a grave. He's on the right-hand throne of God And you need to know this. He's talking to the ones that crucified Jesus. And you need to know also he's going to make his enemies his footstool. Number one, it's Bible-based. But then what we just went over kind of brings out the second point. And that is this sermon was Christ-centered. Tonight we'll go into this just a little more depth. But I'll just mention it. The beginning of this sermon was an answer to their perplexity. If you'll drop back in 12 and 13, when the Holy Spirit that was promised to them, that's why they were waiting Jerusalem. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, the mighty rushing wind drew a crowd. In other words, if, if you and I maybe heard the most unusual loud sound across the foyer, it would not be unusual for all of us to rush in there. Well, that's the picture that's painted in the first part of Acts. Whenever those in Jerusalem heard this mighty rushing wind, they ran, and and we see this in verse 6, the multitude came because they wanted to see what the noise was. Now, what kept them there? What kept them there was that they saw all these Galileans speaking in a tongue that was the native tongue of which they were born. In other words, they weren't speaking Greek that all of them could understand. They were speaking in a language that all of them from their native-born tongues, from their countries, could understand. So they knew some really powerful miracle was taking place. Others said, no, it may not be a miracle. It may be that they're just drunk at this time. And so it's from their question at the end of verse 12, where they say, whatever could this mean? And 13, are they full of new wine? That Peter stands up and he says... Instead of me telling you what this is today, why don't I let the Scriptures tell you what this is? This is what Joel said. Because keep in mind, they would respect the Scriptures. 
They were Jews at this time that did not respect Jesus as the Lord, but they did respect the Scriptures. And so he begins there in Joel. Now, once he gives a description of the Holy Spirit coming, and this is a fulfillment of that, if you have your Bible open, I'd like for again, just put your eyes on these passages. Look at 21 and just glance down with your eyes, 21 all the way down to about 35 or 36. Every one of those verses mentions Jesus by name or by pronoun except for two of them. You see why we say that it's easy to see that this sermon is a Christ-centered sermon? It's all about the Jesus that saves us. They weren't for sure who that Jesus was being, was that really the Jesus of Nazareth that they crucified? So point number two, it's all about that Jesus that saves us, that is alive. You crucified Him. God raised Him. And not only that Jesus that saves, that is alive, but the last part of the sermon, He makes it very clear that He's reigning on the right-hand throne of the Father. He's going to place His enemies as their footstool. Peter was fearless. Why would we say Peter was fearless? If somebody stood right here and was crucified for a cause, for a movement, for a belief system, would you be willing to stand anywhere within a quarter of a mile of here within seven weeks and look at the same people that had yelled, crucify Him, crucify Him and declare that that leader of that movement is the King that reigns on high and they crucified Him? Do you realize Peter preached this sermon in the same town within the shadows of the temple where the leaders were the ones that had made the arrangement to crucify Jesus. And he actually preached to the same people that would have been some of the same people that would have cried out the words, crucify Him, crucify Him. Now, keep in mind, seven weeks ago, Peter was the one that couldn't find enough courage around warming up his hands around a fire of just a few people to say, I believe in Him. I'm one of His. What's changed in his life? Seven weeks later, he has the courage not only to say, I'm one of his. Seven weeks later, he has the courage to preach the sermon to say, you're guilty of crucifying him. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us all the reasons why, but I can guess it was because at the very end of the book of John, Jesus came back to him and asked him three times, do you love me? And even convicted him with the third time of showing him how he will one day die. In other words, Peter was sold out. He was willing to give his life for the cause at this time and he really meant it this time. But also he had waited in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. And when the Spirit came, he received that Spirit with power. And he stood and he realized that he was a part of something that was bigger than himself. Does that make sense? Let that sink in. Peter knew he wasn't standing up preaching about something that he figured out. He dreamed up. He knew that he was working as a partnership with God. 
He knew his king Jesus was on the right hand of the Father and looking down and that he was doing the king's work. He knew that the Spirit of God was working in him and that he was doing God's work. And he knew that he was pointing the people toward a path that they could become God's people. Friends, when we become wholly a part of a work that we realize it's not us, it's us partnering with God. As we think about reaching our community in 2009, we must see the fact that we are not just as a congregation, as individuals. What can we do collectively to reach a community? No, it's when we partner with God. What can we do to reach a community? When we plant the seed that God has given us, what will the harvest be? The response? The response was absolutely amazing. They were convicted in their hearts in 37. It was cut to the heart. And they cried out, what shall we do? They wanted to know If that Lord is alive and He is on the right-hand throne of God and He is going to put down the enemies as His footstool, they didn't want to be the enemy. They wanted to be on the side of the Messiah. And their response created Peter's response to that question that said, Repent. Change your direction. Turn to God. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, not in John's baptism but in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Yes, God will take away the guilt of your sin even if you crucified Jesus and all of us did. It's our sin that helped put Jesus upon the cross and God will forgive that. And you know what He'll do? He'll give us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we have a deposit made with us that shows us hope that God is working in us. We in our mind's eye can look up to heavens and we can see Jesus on the right hand side and know that we're doing His work. Friends, there's something as we close this that I want you to think about that's profound to me. Do you notice that the one that walked with Jesus, the one that was rebuked by Jesus, Peter, the one that was a good friend of Jesus, the one that had watched Jesus in the resurrected form and had watched Him ascend into heaven. He stands in Acts, the second chapter, the first day the church began. And you know what He didn't say? This amazes me. He didn't say, I want to tell you all the things I've been through with Jesus. I want to tell you about what I've experienced with Jesus. I want to tell you how I felt when I saw the resurrected Lord. I want to tell you what came over me as I saw Him ascend into heaven. Why? Because what we feel and what we experience will not save our life. And it will not save other people's souls. You know what saves souls? It's when somebody says, let me give you the Bible. Let me show you the Jesus that's in the Bible. And let me do it fearlessly. You say, oh, maybe everybody can have a response of 3,000 souls. No, flip over a few more pages in your Bible and you'll see another young man that stood up fearlessly before a crowd. His name was Stephen. And they killed him for doing so. 
We don't know what the result is going to be when we plant the seed. Our simple task is plant the seed and God will take care of the harvest. Our task is water the seed and God will take care of the harvest. And so this morning, we extend an invitation, and it's not our invitation. It's not we're saying this is, we're under the opinion that this is a good thing to do. We're not saying we've thought about it and this is what we advise. This morning, we're saying we look in the Word of God and we see a Savior that says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And that Savior wants us to be a believer, John 3 and 16. That Savior wants us to repent of sins, Luke 13 and 3. That Savior wants us to be willing to confess Him before men, Matthew 10, 31 and 32. That Savior wants us to be immersed into Him. Acts 2 and 38, Romans 6 and 3, Galatians 3 and 27, for the remission of sins. That Savior wants us to come out of that watery grave of baptism alive, ready to live a transformed life that produces the harvest that comes only when the right seeds are planted. This morning, can we help you with that? If we can, come as we stand, as we sing. Thank <laughs> you.